You're listening to Places I Can't Return To, an audiobook by Sean Bear Flannery. Narrated by, well, me, Sean Bear Flannery. Each week, I release the next chapter here on this podcast. If you enjoy these stories, you can buy the full book in digital, print, or audio at my website, seanbearflannery.com. That's Bear, B-A-I-R. What you're about to hear are true stories. But this is no memoir. It's more of an illustration, maybe even a warning, of what your life will look like if you decide to live every day like it's your last. Because I followed that advice. I followed it for a good 15 years. And I cannot re-enter most of the places I visited in that time. Windy City Liability, Chicago, Illinois. On September 11th, 2001, I was fired from my job as a software developer after the terrorist attack. That's an important distinction to make because workers that are merely unproductive or subpar don't get fired on such a day. You have to be a pretty terrible employee a top-to-toe jackass, for your boss to remember to fire you a few short hours after learning the world is ending. In my defense, there are extenuating circumstances. I was hungover. I've worked full-time since the age of 16, and this is the only time I've lost a job due to a hangover, which, when you consider how much I used to drink, is uncommonly impressive. It's like an airline with a single late arrival in its history. Often, when I arrived at work, the first words I would hear would be something like, Holy shit. I did not expect to see you today. From some co-worker who was out with me the night before. I often learned how crazy my night was from others. Never my own memories. That's not to say I blacked out. I usually remembered everything but I consider one's own memories a useless gauge because in the great play of drinking, there are only two characters, self and other. And self always thinks it's doing just fine. Self believes that it is always speaking with the perfect touch of humor and nimbly moving in between topics. Other says that you are repeating the same story over and over so loudly people three rooms away are afraid to become stuck talking to you. Self feels proud, happy for kicking the party into a higher gear by starting a dance floor. Other yells that you are knocking over drinks and that this is a studio apartment, not a bar. Self thinks one more bar, a nightcap, would be the perfect ending. Other screams that you start working four hours and are missing a shoe. See, there are two things you can't effectively do to your own body. One is tickle it, and the other is rate how drunk it is. Side note, if you do manage to tickle yourself, you're probably pretty shit-faced. In order to self-assess one's level of inebriation, you must deduce your state of drunkenness from what the other says. If people are repeatedly asking you questions like, don't you have to work tomorrow? 
or please tell me you're not driving home. You are drunk, no matter what self is telling you. Science time. Meet the players behind your buzz. Hi, I'm the cerebral cortex. I cover the top parts of your brain and am the most complex, sophisticated part of the entire organ. I am in charge of decision-making, risk assessment, language skills, consciousness, basically what makes you a human instead of an ape, and I'm the first thing that is shut down by drinking beer. You probably know alcohol is a depressant, right? And that is the reason you shouldn't drive drunk, because it slows your reactions. What you may not realize is, the only reason you are even considering driving drunk is because alcohol has already slowed me, the cerebral cortex, down so much, you can't even calculate how bad of an idea it is. And that's because you are a fucking idiot without me. Take me out of the equation, and you are basically a heavy, land-based goldfish that can't make decisions or predict consequences. If I did not exist, and you owned more than one dog, your dogs would be in charge of the house. Are you one of those people that think you can speak perfect Spanish when drunk? Well, I would like to assure you, as the part of the brain that is normally in charge of reading other people's reactions, that you sure as fuck cannot. Instead, what's going on is, you have flooded me with so much alcohol, I can't assess how people are reacting to you. And, since you are not hearing any negative feedback from me, because I've been flooded into silence, you drunkenly assume you are pulling off perfect Spanish. The reason you fight more when drunk is because it takes me more time to determine if someone is agreeing with us or not. But your drunk ass won't tolerate that delay. So you just throw a punch. Or scream, Fuck you, Rob! Rather than wait for an accurate answer. I'm the chaperone of the brain. Come to think of it, I'm more a warden than a chaperone. Because this institution would be chaos without me. Without me... The rest of this organization we call a brain would be a right shithole. No one around here fully grasps the challenges I face in just keeping you alive when you drink. Because as though impairing me with a bottle of wine wasn't enough, booze also increases the production of dopamine. Dopamine is the brain's reward system, the party center. It creates euphoria and is the only neurological facility that accelerates when drinking. The best way to describe what happens when you get drunk is that you have locked me, the warden, in my office. And you have emancipated the prison's craziest, least well-adjusted inmate, Jimmy the Dope Dopamine. 
and all the other inmates have elected him leader. Have you ever wondered why you fall out of chairs laughing at stories when drinking? Why you are staying out five hours later than you planned? Why you are eating gyros as the sun rises? Because fucking dopamine is in charge. You think I would allow any of that? We have an ulcer, for Christ's sake. Because fucking dopamine is in charge. I don't expect you to absorb any of this. The curse of being the cerebral cortex is that I'm sophisticated enough to understand that you hate me. You despise the doubts and anxiety I cause by reading other people and wondering about the future. Oh no, you just want to burp and giggle and hold french fries down from your lips to imitate a beaver for your friends. That's why you drink. But I want to point out, if not for me, you wouldn't exist. I don't mean just you specifically, I mean the whole fucking human race. Did you know, when we started, there were direwolves and saber-toothed tigers and bears that could run faster than cars. How the hell do you think we made it past all that? With dopamine? No, it was me. So I guess what I'm saying is, show some respect the next time you are drinking. And ask yourself, is everything going as awesome as I think it is right now? Or have I just shut out the best thing in my life and the only thing that tells me the truth? Thank you. Editor's note. In the interest of equal time, we ask Dopamine to respond to this essay by the cerebral cortex. Dopamine's only response was a recording of ACDC's Let There Be Rock, sent to us on a Maxwell UR90 cassette tape. What we forget about September 11, 2001, is that September 10, 2001, was like any other day. Which meant I was doing what I usually did in those days. Drinking until dawn. Sometimes, when I explain that I was out until sunrise the night before the attacks, people respond, Wasn't September 11th on a Tuesday? Yes, I reply. Yes, it was. That day, I woke up an hour past the start of work and immediately panicked. I was supposed to be giving a presentation in 20 minutes' time. I did not know it, but the Twin Towers had already been hit by planes, and the rest of America was dealing with the knowledge that the country was under attack. But as far as I was concerned, the main danger I was facing that day was imminent dismissal from my job. I jumped out of bed, put on some deodorant, the clothes from the previous night, brushed my teeth, and then febrezed my entire body. Back then, you could smoke in bars, so your clothes stunk if you wore them the night before. You could always identify the drunks at work because their clothes smelled like bonfires. But not mine. After spraying them, my clothes smelled like a lemon tree. A lemon tree that someone had set on fire the previous night. I ran out the door and boarded the train within five minutes of waking up. This is how I used to get ready for work. 
like a fireman answering a three-alarm blaze. I wonder what it must have looked like to my neighbors. I ran out of the apartment every morning like I was escaping a gas leak. There was never time for breakfast or coffee or even to verify that the socks and shoes matched. One time I got to work, went straight into a meeting, and while I was answering a question, a pair of underwear and a sock dropped from inside of my pant leg onto the floor. I'd put my pants on so hurriedly that morning, I did not notice that underwear and socks were still inside the legs. So there I was, on the train, on September 11th, riding to downtown Chicago with about 100 confused, afraid Americans who are all processing a tragedy. And then there's me, a wholly clueless, uninformed man with a terrible hangover. For me, the main effect of a hangover is that I lose my wits. The world doesn't seem any slower to me. I know it's spinning at the same rate. But I cannot observe, interpret, or react to it at my normal speed. It's as though my eyes, ears, and brain have aged 50 years overnight. I always beam when people say I'm smart. Not because I'm insecure and need validation, but because I consider it a great compliment when you consider I wake up every day as a moron. When I was growing up, my brother Paul had a large, impressive train set that spanned across a model city he had built. Every morning, our youngest brother Brendan would wake up first, play with the set, and, in doing so, destroy the entire thing. Hours later, Paul would wake up and fastuitously rebuild it. That is also how my brain works. I rebuild it every morning. A specific example of that dimness. I did not notice our answering machine was blinking with a new message as I rushed out of the apartment, slamming the door blindly. This was back when cell phones were less common, and usually, when I left the apartment... I looked at the answering machine in the hallway to see if I missed a call, to see if my plans would be changed. That day, I did not look at the machine, and therefore, did not hear that new message until the following day. It was my roommate calling to warn me. Hey, Sean, it's Paul, calling from work. Uh, I know you got in pretty late last night, so you might be just waking up and... um. Some sort of attack is going on. It's, it's pretty big. Planes have flown into the Twin Towers. It's really bad. Uh, so it, your, your office might already be closed. You should check. Anyway, uh, mostly just wanted to share so you don't you know, make an ass of yourself or something. That last line proved to be prophetic. The train moved underground and I began to feel unwell like I might pass out. I only had one more stop, but I was worried I would vomit before we reached the station. I pushed my way to the back of the train to have more space and buckled over against the back wall. A very young man, probably college age, saw me struggling and in a community-spirited kind of way sought to reassure me. Hey, sir. Hey, sir, you're going to be okay, okay? We all will. He was, of course, talking about the 9-11 attacks. But, as I knew nothing about that, I assumed he had merely recognized that I was hungover and sought to give me some solace. We pulled into my station, 
I turned to the guy, smiled, and said, Pal, this isn't even one of my ten worst mornings. And I walked off the train. As I exited that station, I started to piece together why I was feeling so unwell. It wasn't so much a hangover, not directly. I noticed a distinctly prophylactic smell emanating from me, as well as white marks where the color had been rubbed out of my slacks. It was then that I realized I had not Febreze my clothes. I had grabbed the wrong bottle and sprayed OxyClean over everything. Thanks to haste and a hangover, I did not notice that the first thing I did that morning was cover myself in an all-killing bleach. When I look back at all the peacockish mistakes I've made in life, I sometimes wonder if the bystanders remember the events as, as vividly as me. For instance, the kid who tried to reassure me that everything would be okay, he had to be left wondering, what in the hell kind of life has this lunatic businessman led for him to emphatically state that planes flying into buildings, the country in panic, does not crack his top 10 shittiest mornings? I climbed the stairs, and upon reaching the street level and fresh air, began to feel kind of normal again. My clothes looked ridiculous, but I figured if I have good luck with the elevators, I should only be a few minutes late for my first meeting. I felt optimistic. Until I saw the mad rush of people I would be working against to reach the office. My building was a block past DePaul University's Loop Campus, which had just canceled classes due to the attacks. So at this point, there was a large mad rush of students pushing against me and trying to get on the train, while I marched to the office in the opposite direction. As I passed the masses, I overheard disconnected statements of fear and worry, as well as a phrase which I think is, bomb threat. But even then, I concluded they were referring to the old college bomb threat. You know the one. Some fraternity slacker didn't study for their finals, so they forced the pledge to phone in a bomb threat to school and give them another day to cram. It was a normal academic tactic in the 80s and 90s. I reached the office and was immediately pulled into a large conference room. Our CIO was standing in front of and addressing a large group of people. This is a scary morning. No one knows what's going on. Our CIO cautioned, uh, Some of you are hearing different things. We feel the appropriate response is to close the office. Go home. Be safe. And be with your families. Now, of course, for the CIO, this was a solemn duty trying to discharge and provide comfort to a room full of nervous, dejected people. We're all worried about the events unfolding on the news and what that meant for the future of the country. But as far as I was concerned, and blithely assumed everyone else was on the same page, he was overreacting to what was clearly a fake bomb threat next door at DePaul. Believing myself to be the beneficiary of some moron's attempt to get out of a test, I yelled, yes, and raised my hand for someone to high-five me. Possibly the most inappropriate high-five ever requested. Because I'd entered late, I was situated near the front of the conference room, behind management and visible to everyone. I turned to the engineer nearest me, my arm still raised, still asking for a high-five, and announced, almost giddily, Oh yeah, my man! Home by noon! 
The engineer didn't really want to high-five me, but I forced the issue. The room was quiet, except for my one happy yelp. I remember the CIO staring at me in bewilderment, along with my immediate boss, the head of e-business. I started walking towards the door, exposing the white stripes up and down my clothes where the cleaning agent had eaten away the color. Just before exiting, I turned and broke the silence with, Boys, I'm going to get a haircut. Then I walked out, first from the conference room, then the office, and eventually, as I had learned a few hours later, that entire corporation. A few hours after leaving, I learned of the attacks. And when my boss called to fire me later, I considered it important that he knew that I did not know about the terrorist attacks during that meeting. Christ, Sean, I know that, he assured me. You're not an asshole, he assured me. You're being fired because you show up an hour late every day. And if you're wondering why we picked today, it's not even the awkwardness of how you acted. It's more that you're the head of software security and the entire office just saw that you somehow made it to work as the head of security without learning about the biggest terrorist attack in modern history. Also, he added, if we're leveling with each other, that weird disappearing ink outfit you were wearing didn't help. <laughs>